We continue in our series in Acts, and this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 11. So please, let's have God's Word open us up to Acts chapter 11, and we'll be going from verse 19 to 30 in chapter 11, 19 to 30, and then we're going to make a little jump to chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. So if you follow along with me, I'll be sure to gather us all together for that jump as well. When you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 11, starting on verse 19. Now this is the Word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the Word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas came to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there will be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Um, The weather has gotten cold again, and so the sweaters have come out. (laughs) Uh, Let me just start by asking you a question. Uh, Imagine a movement, a movement so powerful that it has the ability to transform both the individual and all of society. Imagine a movement so influential that it's able to reshape all of culture, the economy, and ethics. Imagine a movement so momentous, it's able to upend empires and kings, a movement that has the elasticity to spread to every nation, people, and tongue without any barriers, and imagine a movement that has lasting permanence to endure for over 2,000 years. How do you think such a movement would begin? 
What strategies do you think would be implemented? What would the leadership structure look like? What's the one-year, five-year, ten-year plan for such a movement? Well, up until this point in Acts, Christianity was still Jewish Christianity. In other words, Christianity was still largely focused in Jerusalem, still practicing Jewish customs made up of ethnic Jews. But from Acts 11 onwards, Christianity breaks off from Judaism. Its followers are first called Christians for the first time ever. Not Jewish Christians, but they just become simply Christians. Cross-cultural missions is launched, and this movement goes on to become the most influential, the most transformative, the most lasting movement ever. History is altered forever from this point on. Now, if you take these expectations, and if you go back to today's passage, you might be a bit disappointed. Why? Because the beginnings are uninspiring. It's unassuming. There's no grand plan or ambition that's shared to be a global movement. The people aren't gathered at the local coffee shop working on marketing ideas. They're not crafting their rhetorical skills and working on programs to become this unstoppable movement. They don't have this, you know, first pitch PowerPoint deck that shares this grand vision. No, it's simply the message of Jesus carried by the feet of messengers. The beginning of this movement is through very ordinary means. Ordinary means leading to extraordinary grace. See, and that is the point that Luke wants to make. The power of this movement is not in the messenger, it's not in the mode of communication or in the means by which it's communicated, but the power is in the message itself, the message that Jesus is Lord. And so, as we look at today's passage, I want us to observe I want us to look at how the gospel first advanced in the world with the expectation that this same gospel, that this same advancement would occur in our church today and in our lives. I want to make four observations. And the first observation I want us to look at is this. The gospel advancement was sparked by suffering. It was sparked by suffering. Verses 19 to 20 says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. If you recall back in Acts 7, Stephen is martyred, and as a result, severe persecution breaks out and believers are scattered. Now, that scattering later results in a gathering. It results in a gathering at Antioch in Syria. Now, what do these people do? What are these believers who have been scattered and now they gather? What do they do? They start preaching that Jesus is Lord, 
both to Jews and to Greeks. Now, in verse 20, it says Hellenists. Now, these Hellenists are not the same as the Jewish Hellenists that we saw in Acts chapter 7. If you look at the footnote, uh, it clarifies. There's a footnote probably in all of your Bibles that when it says Hellenists, it's referring to Greeks. So what we have here for the very first time, for the first time ever, the message of Jesus is crossing racial and cultural boundaries, reaching people with no association to the Old Testament, to the temple, or to Judaism. Full-fledged Christianity is born in Antioch, and it's sparked by suffering. Friends, if you trace um, the moments of real gospel advancement, if you look at moments where the gospel advanced, both in history and in your own life, you'll find a very common thread. Suffering. Hardship is almost always, always involved in a way that exercise without resistance doesn't produce physical improvement, your faith, left untested, untried, will not grow. If suffering is eliminated entirely from our life, how will we ever be made aware of sin, of the brokenness in the world, and our constant need for a Savior? Now, suffering is a lot like salt. And if you don't have salt, even the freshest and the highest quality ingredients will remain tasteless. You can get the best cut of steak, but if you have no salt, be a bit bland. But if you add a little salt, if you sprinkle a little salt, those ingredients, they come to life. Now, likewise is the case. You can sit and be a part of the best Bible study group. You can listen to the most amazing sermon. You can worship with the most gifted praise team. But you know, if your life is void of any hardship, most of it will remain largely tasteless. It will be bland. You know, there's a praise song that starts with this line, you are my strength when I am weak. And a few years back, back. You know, I must have sang the song hundreds of times. You know, it was just the opening line of a song. You are my strength when I am weak. But a few years back, there was a moment when I was in real weakness. And I couldn't finish that line without breaking down into tears. If we are never in weakness, how will we ever know the strength of our Lord? See, it's the struggles in life that arouses our desires for the beauty of God's glory. It's the struggles and the suffering in life that heightens our senses to the sweetness of God's truth. It's the hardships that we go through in life that accentuates our thirst for the water of life, Christ himself. You see, these believers were scattered. Things got real for them quickly. They accepted Jesus. They were baptized in his name. But because of their confession, they were forced to leave their homes. They became religious refugees overnight. But what did that do? That produced in them fortitude and a greater understanding of the gospel than even the apostles. Because these people start reaching non-Jews for the very first time. Church, suffering was the canvas 
on which the gospel story was painted. Now, I know that this could be a very delicate topic. Because if you are currently in a moment of suffering, I mean, it would be inconsiderate for me to say, yes, that's great, that's great. I mean, that's insensitive. No one wants to suffer, and when you're suffering, it sucks. I also think that as Christians, we shouldn't try to fabricate some level of suffering in life where you say, you know what, I can afford an Hermes bag, but I'm just going to buy Louis Vuitton. Don't confuse modesty with suffering. We shouldn't produce suffering. We shouldn't try to produce it. But when it comes, when it eventually comes, when it comes in different shapes and sizes, the message is, please do not waste that opportunity. I think the best way I can put it is this. Christians shouldn't invite suffering, but when it shows up at its doorstep, when it shows up at our doorstep, we should be ready and welcome it in. So in other words, Christians, we shouldn't send out an invitation for suffering to come, but when it shows up, we should be ready and we should show it hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 says this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Friends, I want you to know that God, he doesn't promise that we would never suffer. But he does promise that our suffering would never be meaningless. And I think we can take great comfort and find courage in this. You know what's worse than suffering? What's worse than suffering is the absence of meaning behind it. If you suffer for no apparent reason, I think that is, that's real hopelessness. But when suffering is infused with meaning, That's when suffering becomes redemptive. That's when there are redemptive qualities behind it. If you're not persuaded of this in any way, friends, just look to the cross. Look to our Savior who endured suffering with meaning, suffering leading to redemption. And so before we move on to the next point, let me just say, church, suffering, hardship, is often the fertile soil on which the gospel advances in the world and in your life. It's the workshop where the Lord reorients the priorities in your life, where God reveals the idols in your life and he operates on your heart. So when that moment comes, don't be so quick to get off the operating table. Don't rush to pull your car out of the workshop when the work isn't done. Let the great Redeemer do his work, advancing the gospel in your life and those around you. Gospel advancement is sparked by suffering because it heightens our senses. It makes us more aware of our constant need for a Savior. The second observation that we find is this. 
the beginning of this Christian movement was initiated by believers. Verses 20 to 21 again, it says, Some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, coming, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. See, these people who started this movement, who were, who were at the start of this Christian movement, they weren't highly trained, long-tenured Christians. There were no apostles. They were not the few, the proud, the Marines. They were believers. They were ordinary believers with an extraordinary message. I know society has a way of glorifying people who were first who were the first in something, right? We know Jackie Robinson, the first major league baseball player who was colored. Do we know the second? No, not really. We remember the names of people who were the first to ever do something. But I find it fascinating that these people who were the first to evangelize to non-Jews, the first who were called Christians, remain nameless in Scripture. How nameless they were, but Luke makes it clear that the hand of the Lord was upon them. Also interesting is the fact that the church in Antioch was founded by Christians absent an apostle, a deacon, a pastor. You know, nowadays it's usually a pastor that begins the process of church planting, but in Antioch it was the congregation. Why? How? Because everyone in the church was an evangelist. Thank you. From our pastor, (laughs) not the evangelists. You know, I think one of the biggest ways in which the church today has lost the spirit of the early church is that ministry today has become too specialized, left to the professionals while everyone else watches. Friends, this is not the way church was intended to be. Church is not this hierarchical system where you have the essential and the non-essential, the professionals and the non-professionals. No, the church is an organism where every single person is indispensable, where every part is needed. Yes, we all have different functions, but we all make up one body. Writing for Christianity Today, uh, missionary Michael O. touches on this very point. And I want to read large sections of this article because... um, Because I want to assume his voice, because everything that he writes, I think it's so true. And I want to assume his voice because this is how I feel. And this is what I want to share with our congregation, the church here. Michael Lowe writes this. You don't support or you don't exist to support our ministry. We exist to support yours. I want to speak to you as someone who is a member of the 1%, the 1% of those in the church who are ministers and missionaries, the 1% of those who are in professional ministry. And I want to repent. I want to repent on behalf of the 1% for viewing the 99% of the church not in professional ministry as existing to support our ministry. The reality for many missionaries and ministers like myself is that we are indeed supported financially by the 99. For this, we are tremendously grateful. 
Missionaries and ministers can't do their ministry without the biblical generosity of the 99%. But their ministry of giving is not their ultimate value nor their exclusive ministry. And I confess that I too easily forget that the 99 cannot do their ministry without our support as well. To forget that couldn't be more wrong. If ministry and mission are relegated only to the realm of ministers and missionaries, we are in trouble. Why? Because the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled without you. The 1% of those who are in professional ministry will never reach the world with the gospel. The 1% cannot make disciples of all nations. Why? First of all, the 1% numerically are not enough. There are only one missionary for every 150,000 Japanese. Only one missionary for every 500,000 Muslims. Do you know how long it takes to share the gospel with 500,000 people? If we rely upon pastors and those in professional Christian ministry to share the gospel, it will never touch many people's lives and many spheres of society. The only way that people in your company, your school, your neighborhood, or your sports team, in your restaurant, in your theater troupe, are going to be touched by the gospel is through you. I don't know anyone in a theater troupe. If you are in one, you got to touch them with the gospel. And he says this, it takes the whole church to make disciples of all nations, and the Holy Spirit longs to minister through you. Church, while we are not all pastors, we are all priests. The New Testament makes clear that we are all priests called to service and ministry. And this is how biblical Christianity begins. Not with professionals, but organically, through ordinary believers. Ordinary means with an extraordinary message. The third observation I can make is this. The gospel ministry in Antioch, we find, is authenticated by authority. Verses 22 to 23 reads like this. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, what we find here is that this, the church in Jerusalem got word that non-Jews were coming to faith. So large number of people were coming to faith, not by way of Jewish custom, right? Because up until this point, remember, the Ethiopian unit came through the Old Testament. Cornelius in Acts 10, he was a God-fearing Greek. They were entroached or they were within this uh, Old Testament custom But now in Antioch, we find that people are being led straight to Jesus, straight to Jesus. No pit stops in between. This was new. This was curious. And so the church in Jerusalem, they send Barnabas, one of the main leaders of the church at that time, to authenticate this gospel movement. Now, I I know I might sound like I'm contradicting the previous point, but Friends, it's not just wise, but it's always necessary for the church to test, examine, and verify everything by holding it up to Scripture. See, because while in Acts we have genuine expressions of faith, we also find in Acts there are counterfeit expressions of faith. 
Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. As we saw in Acts 8, Simon Magus. There's genuine faith and there's counterfeit faith. And what we find in the church is this testing. In the church of Acts, there's this testing of faith to see if it is genuine. And this is what I mean by authenticating by authority. See, by authority, I'm not speaking of people, positions, or offices. But by authority, I'm speaking of Scripture. The only authority that the church has is derived from Scripture itself. Now in Acts, because there was no New Testament, this authority of truth came from the apostles, those who directly witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles who wrote the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what we find in the life of the early church is the validation of ministry through the authority of the Word. See, as a church, I think it's important for us to know that results do not validate the work of God. Just because a revival breaks out does not mean, doesn't always mean that that ministry is authentic gospel ministry. The only way ministry is validated is through Scripture. When it's held up to Scripture, when it's in line with Scripture, when the authority of Scripture authenticates it, validates it, says that this is true gospel ministry. When the authority of Scripture validates it, that's when we can say this ministry, however big, however small, however seemingly effective or ineffective, that is when we can say this is authentic gospel ministry. You know, one of the reasons why we interview people for baptism is that. It's not because we take people's confessions lightly but because we don't want to take baptism lightly. There's a responsibility in the church to guard the truth. And we find that the early church was careful. The early church was deliberate. The early church was not letting results dictate their decision. They weren't simply saying, wow, look at what's going on there. That's a church. That's gospel ministry. No, they had to go and see. They had to authenticate it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, when Paul is writing, he says this. This is interesting. I think it strikes an amazing balance. He says this, do not quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, right? Let the gospel go forth, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, you know, the church is just being stringent or, you know, they're, they're trying to safeguard things too tightly. If you are of that opinion, you are forgetting that the church has a real enemy. That there is a real enemy always trying to distort and divide the truth of the gospel. That is why the church is called to test everything. I've heard one of the hardest uh, fast food franchises to start is Chick-fil-A. Uh, Chick-fil-A is one of the hardest, if not the hardest. Now, what's interesting about starting a Chick-fil-A franchise is you need very little capital to start. Of all the franchises, it requires the least amount of capital. You only need $10,000 to start. But the approval process is long, it's arduous, and it's highly selective. Why? Because Chick-fil-A wants to make sure that you are through and through Chick-fil-A material. 
It's not enough to just understand the menu. Yes, it's the same two kinds of chicken that they cut up and prepare in different ways. That's the entire menu. But it's not just enough for you to understand the menu. But you need to have the spirit of Chick-fil-A. I, I know that sounds pretty weird, but you need to have the spirit. They go through, I think, nine different rounds of interviews, filtering and filtering and filtering to see if you really understand and believe in this Chick-fil-A customer service, if you know how to handle long lines, if you know, how, if you know the, the restaurant, if it's in your DNA. I hear at the end, they prick you to see if you bleed that good Chick-fil-A sauce. But Chick-fil-A does this not because they're being picky or elitist, but it's because they believe what they have is precious and they want to safeguard it as much as possible. So as a church, what we need to do is we need to constantly test everything to Scripture. As a church, we need to let the authority of Scripture guide us. We need to check our desires and our passions and our mission and our vision with Scripture to see if they are in line with what God says. And you need to do the very same thing in your own life. Constantly examining yourself testing yourself, your heart's desire to what Scripture is saying to see if it is authentic gospel advancement in your life. The final observation that we can make from the church in Antioch is that it's nurtured by teaching. What happens in verses 25 and 26 when Barnabas sees that this is authentic gospel ministry, he sees that, okay, They need to be nurtured. And so he goes to Tarsus, he looks for Saul, he finds him and he brings him to Antioch. And it says, for a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. A consistent practice in the early church is the teaching and the learning of Scripture. Remember Acts 2.42, what did the early believers devote themselves to? To the apostles' teaching. The next church that we find, the church in Antioch, what do they do? What do they commit themselves to? They commit themselves to teaching, to learning. Whether it's the church in Antioch, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, all the churches that come after, believers are deeply committed to the learning of Scripture. They were hungry for the truth, not just to learn, but to live it out. And you can really tell that this was the case because who does Barnabas call? He calls Saul of Tarsus. Now, we think, oh, man, they got the best speaker. They got the best pastor. Saul of Tarsus, oh, my goodness, they got the best missionary ever. But remember, before all of that, who is Saul? Why are these people even here in the first place? Why are they in Antioch? Because Saul persecuted them. Why did they have to flee their homes? Because this man was trying to kill them. And look who Barnabas calls. Look who Barnabas brings to teach them. I mean, if you were a member of the early church, if you were a member of the church in Antioch, would you not oppose this? At the congregational meeting, I think some of us would be tempted to vote him down. Nah, not yet. Sure. Sure, it's great that he's a Christian. But do you know the suffering that this man put me and my family through? I have to leave my home 
And now that I'm finally settled in Antioch, now that I finally made a home here, this man is coming to pastor at the church that I'm at? No way. No way. You know, I think there's so much wisdom in what Barnabas does. He sees that these people, their faith is real. The gospel advancement is authentic. They're preaching the message of forgiveness. And so what does Barnabas do? He calls someone whom they are now, whom they have to now forgive. He calls him to be the pastor of the church. Further, I know that this man, Paul, you know, we think of him as the great apostle Paul. But up until this point in Acts 11, Paul was actually, in the eyes of the world, he was largely a failure. You know, a story that often doesn't get told is in in, in Acts 9, after Paul's conversion event, he goes to Damascus, and he's preaching the gospel there. He's there for three years preaching, but he's rejected. He's kicked out. No converts. Then he goes to Jerusalem, And the apostles, they say, you know what? We can't accept you into our fellowship. So he gets rejected by the apostles. And then he goes back to his hometown, Tarsus, and he was there for about nine to ten years. And so about 14 years have elapsed when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus to when he's called to pastoral ministry in Antioch. Fourteen years. Paul was a man who were 14 years went without a position. Not only was Paul someone who hunted these people, but he was a pastor with a failed resume. He was unemployed for 14 years. But that didn't matter. The church in Antioch, did they say, oh, you know what, we want to check his resume. We want to make sure he's right. You know, did they say, oh, this guy... No church would even take him on. We don't want to listen to the word of God from this guy. No. Why? Because they were hungry for the word. It didn't matter that it came through the mouthpiece of a rusty preacher, someone who was unemployed for 14 years, or even someone who was trying to kill them. No, the church desired the word. They yearned for it. They hungered for it. While preaching the message of forgiveness to the community, to the city, to their neighbors. They were forced, challenged, to now practice that forgiveness to the very man who was trying to kill them and their family. What an amazing portrait of grace. So unassuming, so uninspiring, so ordinary yet producing extraordinary grace. Friends, this is in many ways how the gospel advances in your life, in my life, and in the life of the church. Are you currently in a moment of suffering, hardship now? Please do not waste it and let it be fertile soil in which the Lord works on your heart. Is there a hunger for the word? a desire for the word, then friends, don't just listen to it, but take it in, digest it, and live it out, practice it, turning all of that nutrients into muscle.
friends, is there someone right now that you are called that you are called to forgive? As you are listening to this message of forgiveness, as you share this message of forgiveness, is there someone that the Lord is calling you to forgive? These are often ways in which the gospel advances. May we respond with faith and obedience unto him. Would you join me in prayer at this time?